you're newer to Redeemer Church, September is our, uh, the month that we uh, emphasize global missions. Uh, in one sense, Christians are always on mission. We make disciples locally, wherever we live, work, study, play. But local ministries should never lose sight of global missions. When we talk about missions, we're talking about making disciples where the gospel isn't known at all, where there are no Christians gathering and giving and going. Peoplegroups.org estimates that 3,175 people groups remain unengaged. That means no missionaries, no church planting strategy exists to reach them, nobody's taking them the gospel, and without the gospel they're perishing. When we talk about missions, we're talking about engaging these people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts serves us well when discussing missions. If you had to summarize Acts in a nutshell, it is the risen Jesus advancing His kingdom through His Spirit-empowered people spreading the gospel to all nations. It began in Jerusalem, it spread out to Judea and then to Samaria. And since chapter 13 in Acts, we've been watching the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Syria, Cyprus, Pamphylia, Pisidia, Galatia, Phrygia, Macedonia, Achaia. And now, in chapter 19, which is where we'll we'll be today, Paul is spreading the gospel in Asia, in Ephesus. So we're going to start where we finished in July, Acts chapter 19, verse 8. If if you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of the pew Bibles there in front of you. Uh, If you don't have a Bible at all, even at your house, feel free to take that one home uh, with you. But you can, can find it on page 928 In chapter 16, we observe that the Holy Spirit forbid Paul from preaching the gospel in Asia. But now, in chapter 19, the Spirit opens a wide door for effective work in Asia. It's one of Paul's longest stays in a city. For several years, he preaches Christ in Ephesus, which is basically the most happening place in Asia at the time. So I'll pick up in verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Father, I pray that you would come and assist me now in proclaiming your word. 
and that you would help us to receive your word with joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen. We're not going to get beyond verse 10 today, and that's largely because I want to develop a theme that Luke mentions, and then I want to relate that theme to our own participation in missions. The theme is the kingdom of God. And I want to answer three questions. What is the kingdom of God? How does the kingdom of God spread? And who is the kingdom of God for? Now the verses before us, there's not much, but they will help us answer this question in part. We'll also have to draw from the broader testimony of Acts as well as the whole of Scripture to answer them fully. But let's begin with our first question. What is the kingdom of God? It says in verse 8 that Paul was persuading them about the kingdom of God. What's that? Is it a specific place in the Middle East? Can we travel there? Are we looking for castles and knights? Well, Luke assumes we already know what he means. He has mentioned the kingdom before. In chapter 14, verse 22, it's something we enter, but only through many tribulations. In chapter 8, the kingdom brings with it good news. We also find in chapter 1, verse 3, that the kingdom stood at the heart of Jesus' teaching. But even these places assume we already know what Luke means by the kingdom of God. And that's because Luke developed the kingdom of God in his gospel. The gospel of Luke is, the, is volume 1 to Acts. Acts is volume 2. Two, And if you read Luke's gospel, you find the following characteristics about the kingdom of God. To begin, the kingdom of God fulfills all the hopes and promises of the Old Testament. It fulfills all the hopes and promises of the Old Testament. Numerous places in the Old Testament refer to God's kingship. Because he created all things, God is king over everything and everyone, whether, whether they recognize it or not. Psalm 29, verse 10, The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Psalm 47, 7, God is king of all the earth. Daniel chapter 4, His dominion is an everlasting dominion, His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is king. In the beginning, Adam and Eve acknowledged God's rule. God even created them to image His rule. Their lives, when they were rightly ordered under God, 
they pointed to his glory as the true king. But when tempted to rule their own lives instead, Adam and Eve gave in and sin entered the world. Sin is essentially rebellion against the king. Rebellion against God and his rule. And ever since that day, the nations have raged against God. Now, never does this mean that God lost control as king. Quite the opposite. God proves that he is king by judging sin. God banishes humanity from his presence. God curses the world with disease and death. Confusion and chaos wreck our relationships. God even promises to judge and exclude all evil from his creation one day. But there's a complementary way God proves his kingship in the Old Testament, and that's by redemption. God aims to establish his heavenly rule, actually on earth, to bring peace to the chaos, to heal all that's broken, to replace the evil with good. He will create a new reality on earth. But even more amazing is this. He would also redeem a people to live in it. He wouldn't wipe out all rebels, though he had the right and power to do so. In mercy, he would save some and make them citizens of this new world order. Now, we get shadows of this kingdom throughout the Old Testament. God prefigures this kingdom with Noah and his family, and then with Abraham, and then with Israel, and then with David, as Ben's been pointing out in 1 Samuel. But all these eras are pointing forward to another. The ultimate kingdom hope was tied to only one who would reign on David's throne forever. In Isaiah 9, verse 7, we see this. It says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. With this king would also come wisdom and might, Isaiah 11.2. With this king would also come justice, righteousness, Isaiah 11.4. With this king would also come a divine reversal of the curse... Isaiah 35, verse 6, anticipates the lame man leaping like the deer. Isaiah 61 says the Spirit would anoint this king to bring good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted. To encounter this king would be to encounter the rule of God itself setting all things right in the world. And then Jesus enters the picture in Luke's gospel. And the angel tells Mary that Jesus would be the one to take David's throne. Luke chapter 1, verse 33. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and of his kingdom 
there will be no end. Luke is drawing from these, this theme in the Old Testament and saying this theme is coming to his climax in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king who brings the rule of God on earth. Jesus is the king who brings the rule of God on earth. All the Old Testament hopes depend on his arrival and on his work. Jesus starts his ministry. How? Preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And as he's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, what's he doing? He starts healing people, casting out demons, raising the dead to prove that his kingdom and his kingdom alone restores all that sin has ruined. The kingdom comes near because the king has arrived. He says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, If it's by the finger of God I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's rule manifests itself in the presence of Jesus. Diseases heal, demons flee, death releases, disciples bow. Why? Jesus is the true king who brings God's rule on earth. Now, the way Jesus establishes his kingdom isn't through military power and royal pageantry. As Luke's gospel unfolds, it becomes evident that Jesus establishes God's kingdom by dying on a cross and rising from the dead. His death and resurrection are how he defeats the power of sin and death that dominate those he loves. In Luke chapter 4, what happens? Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would only bow. But Jesus refuses. Jesus obeys his Father's will instead. And his Father's will comes with a cross at the heart of it. A cross will win him the nations. Be gone, Satan. Jesus' death and resurrection are how he makes the rebels he chooses to love into his kingdom citizens. But his death and resurrection also make Jesus' kingdom rather unique. For starters, Jesus' kingdom is upside down. It's upside down. I'm going to be pulling some more things from Luke's gospel here. Normally, the rich run kingdoms, don't they? But Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Normally, the powerful run kingdoms, but Jesus says, Let the children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Normally, greatness means putting others down in their place, lording your position over them. But Jesus says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. Why? Because that images the way the king saved us. 
and brought us to be citizens in his kingdom. He was the greatest king, but he became servant of all, even unto death on a cross. It's upside down to the way the world normally operates. His kingdom is also inside out. Luke's gospel shows how the Pharisees observe the law externally while neglecting the heart. Luke eleven thirty nine. they clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of greed and wretchedness. Many people live the same way today, thinking that their external good behavior is going to somehow get them into the kingdom. Never. What does Jesus tell Nicodemus? Unless you are born again, Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And later he says, unless you're born again, unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. The cross says that we need our sins forgiven. The resurrection says that we need to become new creations. We need a new heart. We need to be changed from the inside out. And only then does our outward behavior truly honor the king. Jesus' kingdom is also already and not yet. So in one sense, as we read a minute ago, the kingdom already arrived with Jesus' first coming. In Luke chapter 10, the disciples announced that the kingdom, uh, that they were to go from town to town, right? Casting out demons and healing people and proclaiming that the kingdom of God had come upon this town. The same idea appears in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 8. Right? The disciples are ask Jesus a question. Is, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Is it now? And then Jesus goes on to teach how the kingdom would come first in the sending of the Holy Spirit and the spread of the gospel to all nations. So for now... The kingdom of God is not a place you can go see, visit. The kingdom of God is present wherever God's rule in Jesus manifests itself among his people. You know what we call that? Church. At the same time, the kingdom is not yet fully present. In Luke chapter 22, verse 18, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. Ben read this a minute ago. And he does so as a sign of the kingdom to come. I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, which is it, Jesus? Did the kingdom of God come upon us or is the kingdom of God still to come? It's both. Or Luke chapter 13, verse 29. People will come from east and west and from north and south 
and recline at table in the kingdom of God. In other words, even though we get glimpses of God's rule in Jesus and God's rule in the church, the fullness of God's rule on earth awaits a future day. And so we might describe the kingdom of God like this. The kingdom of God refers to God's rule manifesting itself on earth in Jesus Christ. It has stages. It was promised in the Old Testament. It was inaugurated in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's present in the church in part. And it will be consummated at Jesus' return. But essentially, it's God's rule manifesting itself on earth in Jesus Christ. Now, until Jesus returns, the kingdom of God is announced. The kingdom of God is announced. And that's where you and I fit in. That's where the book of Acts fits in. The book of Acts is the kingdom of God announced by the church. First sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter announces that Jesus was exalted to the right hand of God. The king is in his place of authority to establish God's final rule on earth. How do we know this? He just poured out the Holy Spirit on all these people. Acts chapter 3. A lame man of 40 years healed in Jesus' name. What's, what's that about? Peter says, God glorified his servant Jesus. The king is on his throne. And he just gave you a sneak peek about what, of what his kingdom is about. The lame will leap like the deer in Jesus' kingdom. You get to chapter 8. Philip announces the good news of the kingdom of God. And on and on throughout Acts, we see them announcing the kingdom or announcing the king. You can imagine Paul explaining this stuff too, right? As he's reasoning with them, with the Jews, about the kingdom of God. They expected a Messiah with great military power. And Paul will have to turn them to Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 and say, no, 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 look here. He first had to humble himself unto death. They expected the kingdom to come immediately to wipe out all these bothersome Gentiles. And Paul would have to say, no, 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 look here and here. The kingdom of God must first be announced to the Gentiles. They expected themselves to be automatically included in the kingdom. After all, they were Jews. And Paul would say, don't eat, you don't trust in your circumcision or just because you're a child of Abraham. No, no, you need a new heart to enter the kingdom of God. This is the way Paul would reason with the Jews about the kingdom of God, explaining its nature and then teasing it out for them. The kingdom is announced in Acts. Beloved, if the king has come, if the hopes and promises of the Old Testament are being fulfilled in him, if God's rule on earth has begun, if the way has been opened by Jesus' death and resurrection for rebels to enter that kingdom by faith for free, 
then we have some good news to announce, don't we? Which leads to our second question. How does the kingdom of God spread? How does the kingdom of God spread? Several clues answer this question. Verse 8 in Acts 19. For three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them. Verse 9. He took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Verse 10. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading, they heard. What's the answer? The kingdom of God spreads through Christians entering people's lives and announcing the kingdom. It does not come at the end of a barrel. It does not come through violence and hatred. It does not come through political revolt. It comes, it spreads through the preaching of the gospel. Announcing the king's arrival. And this isn't just Paul announcing the kingdom. Yeah, he was an apostle and he had some unique freedoms. uh, But others were announcing the kingdom too. If you go back to chapter 18, verse 19, Aquila and Priscilla were in Ephesus sharing the gospel. A little bit further in verse 25, Apollos is sharing the gospel. Colossians chapter 1, verse 7 implies that Epaphras was sharing Christ in Asia at the time. Colossians 2, 1 speaks of Laodicea. Paul had never been to Laodicea, and yet they heard the gospel. Laodicea is in Asia as well. What's the point? When verse 10 says, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, that's not just because of Paul. It was the result of Paul announcing the kingdom to others who announced the kingdom to others who announced the kingdom to others who announced the kingdom to others until all of the residents of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. That's how the mission works. We make disciples of Jesus, who then make disciples of Jesus, who then make disciples of Jesus. The kingdom spreads by telling others about our king, what he did for us, what he's doing in the world now, what's coming. Now, I'm not saying the kingdom's growth is dependent on us. If you choose to say nothing about the kingdom, you're not going to hinder its growth. You just won't be included when it comes. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. So you won't be hindering its growth, but you will be forfeiting the treasure. God doesn't need us to spread his kingdom, but in his grace, he allows us to participate in its spread. 
It's a privilege to announce Jesus' kingdom. It's the greatest privilege in all the universe to belong to His kingdom. There's no greater joy than to know the King of heaven and earth. That's our motivation to speak joy in the King. Think how animated people get at sporting events. I like baseball. And game five of last year's World Series was insane. I mean, seven home runs, six of which were game-tying home runs, back and forth scoring, bottom of the tenth inning, the Astros pull off the win. You don't have to muster up the energy or the boldness to, to shout and, and rejoice, unless you're a Rangers fan, maybe. <laughs> right? You explode with celebration. Complete strangers are hugging each other. Did you see that? They're up on chairs. It's, they're excited. It's easy to speak. Why? Because your heart is compelled by something you perceive as amazing that you probably couldn't pull off yourself. That's how we announce the kingdom. Only the game five win is nothing compared to what our king has done for us. It's nothing. Once rebels, now saved from condemnation, forgiveness of all sins, freedom from a guilty conscience, made beautiful in God's sight, purchased to belong, adopted into His family, enabled to love, heirs of the world, assurance of resurrection bodies. We will reign with Jesus on a new earth, knowing life in its fullness, joy eternally increasing, beholding the face of our King in His glory. And as we do, it's making us into His image perfectly. Come on. We have some good news to announce in the kingdom of God. And when you see those kingdom realities as they are, there's plenty to talk about and they're way more exciting than game five. Or anything else we're excited about here. There's so much glory to offer others in Jesus. And so let me encourage you to look for opportunities to speak about the kingdom. And be faithful in them. As Paul models for us, speak the gospel regularly into the lives of others. The kingdom spreads to others by announcing the good news of Jesus. When people believe the gospel, guess what the Holy Spirit does? He brings people under the rule of God. And He reorders their life under His rule, as it's supposed to be. The rule of God becomes manifest in their desires and their deeds and in their relationships to one another. And that's why when people look in and see the church, they're supposed to see the rule of God on display. Now, not all listeners believe Paul's message, do they? Verse 9 says that some became stubborn. Uh, That is the... They hardened their hearts and they continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So what does Paul do? 
It says he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus is a Gentile. So Paul enters a Gentile lecture hall and reasons daily with them. That's very significant there. And it helps us answer who the kingdom of God is for. Who the kingdom of God is for. Repeatedly, we've encountered a pattern in Paul's mission. We saw it in chapter 13. We saw it again in chapter 18. Now we're seeing it here in 19. With each city, he offers the kingdom to Jews first. And then when they largely reject it, he goes to the Gentiles. Not exclusively, but primarily. And that's what happens again in verse 9. He goes over to Tyrannus' lecture hall. Now, what should we make of this pattern that we see in Acts? It certainly shows that the spread of the gospel won't be hindered by Jewish unbelief. God will take the gospel elsewhere. He will advance His kingdom among others. But more specifically, we need to understand this pattern in light of Paul's teaching in Acts chapter 13, verse 47. That's the first place that Paul shifts to the Gentiles, and he explains why by quoting from Isaiah 49, verse 6. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So you need to understand this shift from Jew to Gentile in light of Isaiah 49. And if you go back and read Isaiah 49, it recognizes that the Jews, Israel, hold a privileged place in God's redemption story. But also, that same redemption story includes God extending His salvation beyond Israel to the nations through a particular servant. We now know that servant's name is Jesus Christ. And get this, in Isaiah 49, that extension would happen in the face of Israel largely rejecting the servant. Okay, so the servant's mission wasn't going to be smooth. Uh, The servant even cries in Isaiah 49, I've labored in vain, I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. This is his cry to God, and God responds, it's too small a thing to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, your work is not in vain, servant. I'm going to bring the nations through you. And then all of this is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the light of revelation to the Gentiles. Luke chapter 2. Jesus is the faithful servant sent to bring Israel back to God. He comes to His own people. The majority of the Jews reject Him. But once He dies and rises again, He then extends salvation to the nations. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. He says, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. He says, as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. The reason Paul goes to the hall of Tyrannus is that he's extending the gospel beyond Israel to the nations, just like Isaiah the prophet had foretold. And even better, 
what this shows right here is that Jesus the servant is still alive. He is alive in heaven and he is living in Paul through the Holy Spirit. And when he's alive in Paul, guess what? Paul's life looks a whole lot like Jesus. He comes, he goes to the Jews, he preaches, they reject him, and then he extends salvation to the nations. The servant is alive in Paul, continuing the same mission he started. And that mission includes all nations. Not just, the kingdom isn't just for Israel, it's for all nations. That's the answer to our question. The kingdom is for Jew and Gentile alike, all peoples, who trust in King Jesus to save them. So whoever you are, if you bow your knee to Jesus and you bring your life beneath His rule, the kingdom is yours. And that answer affects our movement as a church. Our movement isn't come and see, come and see us, come and see what we're doing. It's, it's go and tell. It's go and tell others what God is doing and what God has done. Our movement is outward, pushing into new regions, crossing cultures to new peoples, no restrictions, no limits. No matter the background, no matter the ethnicity, no matter the economic status, no matter the, re- the region, no matter their toughness, our God commands everybody to enter His kingdom through Jesus Christ, and therefore so should we. In order to do so, though, we must go to them. And yes, we'll encounter languages and accents and customs that we're not used to. We'll face social expectations and communication barriers that are difficult to overcome. We may even face various fears when entering places and environments less familiar to us. We'll risk being misunderstood and our words may even get great suffering. Our words may lead to great suffering, but if the kingdom is for all peoples, who are we to let our fears and our preferences and our comforts stand in God's way? If the kingdom is for all, then let the kingdom move you to go to all. And that doesn't mean every Christian needs to pack their bags and move to the next people group. Paul left people behind to ensure that the work in that city continued and disciples matured where they are. When Paul asks the church in Rome to support his mission to Spain, he doesn't expect the church to go with him, but to support him in it. He certainly hoped they shared the same mindset to promote the discipleship of peoples where the gospel was yet known. So the question is, do you share this mindset? Do you look at the world through this lens 
of the kingdom of God. Over the last four years, we've seen refugees settle in Fort Worth from Myanmar, Iraq, Congo, Somalia, and Syria. At the Starbucks, just down the streets, I've met people from El Salvador, Nigeria, Serbia, Turkey, Vietnam, the Philippines. I have a man from Croatia living down our street. Steve was sharing with us the other night at dinner that they had some neighbors over from Kenya, right? Kenya, over to their house. The opportunities to engage in missions are replete in this city. In addition to how we already support those who've gone out from us. But they're replete. Missions is about conforming our mindset and our passions and aligning them to God's global purpose, which is echoed throughout the Bible. Echoed in the promise to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In the prophets, people who've never seen will see, and those who've never heard will understand. In the Psalms, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. In Romans, Christ came to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. In the book of Revelation, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's mission to save a people from all nations saturates the Bible. Does it saturate your life? How does this vision compel you to offer the kingdom to others? 